In the minds of many American Christians, church isn't really a place you go to connect with the transcendence of God or contemplate the majesty, wonder, and beauty of the mysteries of the divine. It's more of a place we visit to be entertained and catered to. Some of our worship gatherings feel more like a pep rally or a pop concert than they do a worship service. And in many worship gatherings, the teaching of God's word has been replaced by a more informal, conversational, TED Talk style sermonette about the importance of the journey of falling in love with Jesus. Oh, and on your way out of the auditorium, be sure to check out the church's other offerings, such as CDs, books, and t-shirts for sale. But it's not just in our churches. As American Christians, we've created our own unique, heavily commercialized, highly monetized subculture. We've got Christian radio, Christian recording artists, Christian movies, Christian TV, Christian-themed restaurants, even Christian amusement parks. We all know it, but most of us are just afraid to say it out loud. It's big business, and we're the customers. But how did we get here? Is this the vision Jesus had for his church 2,000 years ago? And what impact is this excessive commercialization having on our understanding of the church's mission? Is it wrong for worship services to be engaging or entertaining? Is it bad to sell Christian books or make Christian music? And what about Chick-fil-A? That's not bad, too. Is it? Welcome, everybody, to the Beers and Bible Podcast. A podcast where we speak of things related to beards and all things Bible. I'm joined by my co-host, Gabe Rutledge. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. And, you know, we there seems to be a disproportionate amount of our time speaking about the Bible and very little time speaking about beards. Mm. Like, I don't know that we do that part of the title of this podcast justice with yeah. how, how much time we ignore beards that's true i wonder yeah. I've, I've i've noticed my beard is kind of wilting a little bit when i don't spend as much time talking i don't mm. do my beard affirmations every single morning in the mirror you know <laughs> my, my beard, beard is, is strong beard is beautiful <laughs> and dang it people like beard you should you should film a beard montage just for your beard to watch mm-hmm. every morning. <laughs> you know, my, mine is on the, the verge of being gone. Uh, what? Yeah, because you know I'm I'm growing mine out for a fundraiser for Mercy Ships. My my students at my high school are their goal is to raise two thousand dollars, and they just hit the halfway mark. They're a little bit over halfway. Wow! And uh, they're just bringing in you know a few bucks in a time here and there. Just a bunch of eleventh graders, you know, twelfth graders, and. Uh, yeah, they just hit they just hit the halfway mark. So when we hit two thousand, they they will take turns buzzing my beard off, and uh, yeah, so I will be beardless. So that means I've got to find another co-host until mm. you grow your beard back. Yeah, I was thinking about yeah, looking at a prosthetic beard or something. Figure something out <laughs> just for the sake of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I got told last night that apparently um, there's a potter who does pottery, pottery as a ministry. And he teaches the gospel through through pottery. He's a, a good friend of mine, and he uh, he was telling me that he would like the beard hair. He he loves beard hair, 
what? Uh, when he's doing pottery because when he's uh, firing the the pots or whatever he's making in the kiln and there's beard hair mixed into it yeah into the clay that it burns the beard hair off and leaves these really amazing designs that he can only <laughs> he can only get through beard hair and he's like beard hair is the no joke so he's like when you when you when you buzz your beard off put it in a ziploc bag and give it to the potter so okay so that's that's two things number one that's disgusting agreed number two that's beautiful your mm. your beard is capable of beautiful things. Well, it's it nice. can it can create life. It can. <laughs> it's like the the beard's final moments, like it's like as the use me. <laughs> and then it's it's done. I don't know if the beard sounds like that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think I pictured it a little bit more manly than that. But. Use me. <laughs> That's the fire from the butter's kiln, it burning it up. And it goes to like I don't know. Some little clay duck or something like that. You know? <laughs> oh man! Well, once you shave your beard, I'm I'm gonna have to uh, get another podcast for for the time being. I'll have to think of famous Christians with beards who are still alive. We well, just intro um, it as beard and Bible, beard and Bible. I like that beard and Bible, just yeah. singular, singular beard, beard Bible and woman that. <laughs> Because I always say, if you don't have a beard, then, you know, can you even call yourself a man? Uh, so controversial. Right? So, so controversial. Yeah, that's probably not the, uh, it's 2020. Things like mm. gender and things of that nature are probably a little bit more, more of a gender bender now than ever before. But uh, anyway. Well, I, I always default to what Walker, Texas Ranger would say in, that, in those kinds of moments. I just, he's kind of my compass. Yeah, mine too. What's For all things manly. Yeah. And what would he say in that moment? I think he would just put his head down and just shake <laughs> his head. <laughs> I think he would just roundhouse kick his enemies. Hey, you remember on Walker, Texas Ranger, he has a partner that um, it's like a reoccurring gag that every time he sits down with a piece of apple pie, they have to go. No, I don't know anything. Yeah, it's always like he's like, it's the black guy. And every oh, time he yeah, sits yeah. down, every time he sits down with a piece of apple pie, they're like, "Come on!" And I always felt bad because he never gets to eat a stinking piece of pie. That poor guy. I just love that the creators of that show were like, "We need something—a reoccurring theme in here that involves, I don't know, apple pie." <laughs> they're like, "And get this!" So they're about to go to this call to get the bad guy, and this guy sits down with his pie, but he doesn't eat it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Let's make it to where he never can eat pie. Mm. If I ever meet that guy, that actor, I'm going to make him a pie and take him a slice and sit there and say, hey, man, this is for you. I'm going to extend it out to him. And as soon as he tries to eat it, I'm going to jerk it away from him and say, hey, go get in your squad car. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 90s childhood. 90s childhood. Amazing. Well, we are going to take a little trip down history history lane memory lane i don't think it's called history lane we're gonna talk a little bit about um church history today but not church history like most of us think church history in really the past 100 years or so um to get to a place where we can kind of make sense of this quote i think this is a fascinating quote and it's this the greeks turned christianity into a philosophy 
The Romans turned Christianity into a government. The Europeans turned Christianity into a culture. And the Americans turned Christianity into a business. So we have hinted around this uh, topic that we were going to do an episode related to this for a long time now. And uh, we've made this statement before that church in America has been become commercialized. So Gabe, what do we, what do we mean by that statement that church in America has become commercialized and the Americans have turned Christianity into a business? Well, uh, the definition for commercialism is emphasis on the maximizing of profit or uh, practices and attitudes that are concerned with the making of profit at the expense of quality. Mm. And so when we say that commercialism has crept into the American church, I think what I, what I mean by that and what I see in that is there has become a greater focus on filling seats and touting numbers over uh, the transformation of lives or the making of true disciples um, for Christ, um, that that has taken... Now, numbers are not bad. Filling seats is a really good thing. But when you do things, uh, when you when you focus on that to the exclusion of making disciples, then that is where we hit commercialism within the church, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> so essentially, the um, the lowering of quality that's found within the definition of commercialization is that you've got a watered-down gospel message. Mm-hmm. You have discipleship that sometimes happens, but discipleship is... Anything and everything, right? You take a class. Oh, look, you're being discipled, right? So mm-hmm. if it's anything and everything, ultimately it's nothing. Um, and the main point of the worship gathering, the main point of coming together in the people of God, the main point of any of that, it's kind of open for debate. Like, what are we doing here? Is it we come together in a big room and see a show? Do we come together so we can give our money? So a building can get built and a rock show can happen every week. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the, yeah. that's the, the, the lowering of quality that we're talking about. Just kind of, you know, the vision and the purpose behind everything gets distorted and hijacked. Yeah. And I think not only that, but you know, cause you could do all those things really well, but I think when as a pastor or a leader, your first primary focus, the first question that enters your mind is uh, how do I make this a draw to people? How do I not only get people in my door? That's that's the process of selling the product, right? But then how do I how do I develop brand loyalty mm. in people? How do I get them to come back? And Repeat customers. What, yeah, and that's that's what you know <clears throat> CEOs ask. You know, how do you create brand loyalty? So that single purchase isn't enough. We want someone to identify with our product to where they'll continue to come back and, and continue to buy our product. You know, they like subscribe to our product. Mm. And that's what really, what really drives commercialism forward. And yeah. I think that there are, <clears throat> let me say that there is a tendency within leadership. And, you know, I have this, I have in my flesh, uh, to, to want to look across a room and to see a room full of people. And I tend to puff up my chest or something like that. This is my doing or that, um, my creativity in my ability to communicate or my organizational skills, my leadership skills created this room full of people. And that's really dangerous <sighs> because um, 
I think when we put our glory over the glory that's due our creator, he tends to have a habit of taking our legs out from under us because mm. he doesn't like us stealing his glory. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He he humbles the proud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I, I think this has had obviously an impact on, you know, the, the purpose and the goal and the aim of, you know, what we see winning looking like for a church, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, a pastor is constantly facing that pressure of, you know, the the holy trinity of American commercialization, um, and that is budgets, butts and seats, and buildings, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so those are the three things that we're constantly uh, feeling that pressure from, either from ourselves or culture, or even if you've ever been to church conferences or you've subscribed to, you know, uh, Outreach Magazine. Hmm. Outreach Magazine used to do, they don't do this anymore, but they, uh, thank God they don't do this anymore. They would do like the top 10 biggest churches and then the top 10 fastest growing churches. Hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, it was kind of like this, this really stupid game where people would, you'd have to report your numbers to Outreach Magazine to make the list. Wow. And so, um, I don't know if you've ever been to a pastor mixer or anything like that uh, in, in any of these circles or conferences, but it's, it's, it's kind of pathetic. It's kind of um, in, in some ways, and I don't want to discount all of them. There's some of them that are really, really awesome and good, but man, I, I, I remember going to a couple of them and guys are literally walking around and they're sizing each other up based on how many people mm-hmm. uh, the pastors have in each other's churches. Like how many of you guys run it? That kind of thing. And it's just so funny to me. Like you said, numbers aren't a bad thing, but if you make numbers and budgets and you're building kind of the the aim, like, oh my gosh, you've made it since you've got these three things, then, you know, how stinking shallow uh, does that make what we're doing? And then we shouldn't be surprised when the people that we're leading become just as shallow as we are, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. what impact does that have on how, we, and I'm just saying us, like as the laity, not as, you know, two pastors, but just we as Americans, what impact has this commercialization had on how we understand our faith? <laughs> well, that's a really deep question, but it's ultimately it's, um, it's thinned our level of commitment and, um, you know, we, we just, our, our level of commitment goes as deep, um, as you know, the the level of teaching, the level of discipleship that's going on in that in that environment. So you know, because commercialism says, "Hey, if you don't like the product, then there's always a competitor that's going to try to make a better product," and they it might or you know, you know, just just continue to shop around until you find the mm. product that fits your needs the most. So that that's in our psyche as Americans because we have you know pretty much free market capitalism in the United States of America where we can, gosh, if, if, you know, we don't like a type of tennis shoe, there are 60,000 other, you know, tennis shoe manufacturers that will, that will fit our foot, you know, just, just right. And we can just go through all those shoes and find the shoe that we like. We can go to the shoe store and try them all on. So that's the concept. And that's, that's a good thing to do. I'm not saying that's bad, but when you apply that onto how I find and how I stay involved in a community of believers, um, that's that's really thin um, and dangerous. And ultimately, mm. 
it's not sustainable. So essentially the biggest impact is we've created a subculture where people view uh, the purpose of church to cater to them and to mm-hmm. keep them entertained and engaged and give them exactly what it is what they want, how they want it, when they want it. Mm-hmm. And the minute they don't get it, they're going to take their ball and go home or push away from the table and just find someplace else that will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the first things I ask when we have newcomers to our congregation is where were you before and why did you leave there? Because when I hear language of, um, well, the, the teaching, it seemed like the teaching was coming to a place that was, it wasn't no longer biblical or, um, you know, there was, um, some unethical things going on with the leadership. You know, those, those seem like pretty valid for me to go ahead and leave and and find a different place. But, you know, I just couldn't take the pastor's accent or oh my you know, lord the, they just they just never played the hymns that I really grew up with and I loved uh, like that's okay well you know that's I don't know that that's reason for you to break away from your your, yeah. your community the people the you know your shepherd um and and I don't know that this is a good place for you because you're probably going to find something you're probably just going to waste all of our time here you know what I'm saying right cuz there's going to be something you do that they don't like mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. Right. And if the criteria for being involved in a community of faith and being in covenant relationship with other believers is as long as you give me everything I want, how I want it, then we're good. But the minute you do something I don't like, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Man, that's only a matter of time. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. You're, you're bound to do something they're not going to like because <laughs> you can't magically guess what it is they want. And that's not really your job. Your job is to follow the Lord and do what the Lord has called you to do. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think that's probably the biggest impact I've seen. Um, so I would agree with you on that, that we have basically created a culture of consumers. Um, but I think we've also created a culture of spectators in that. I think a lot of people assume that their responsibility as a believer within the body of Christ is to go to the big show and if they like what they see, give a little money. And that's about the extent of their involvement in the body of Christ. Mm. You, you go, you sit, you watch the professionals do the work. And if you like what you see, you give a little bit of money. Mm. And um, man, I just think about like the Apostle Paul and, you know, what the New Testament tells us about we all have a gift. And when you come together Make sure that you have your gift and you're contributing and that you're giving and that you're working together as a body Mm -hmm. and you've got one part that's a hand and one part that's a foot. And like, if we have created a culture where nobody believes they really have a role to play other than just to sit there and give money and you've got all these Christian celebrities and these trained slick people with their V-necks down to their belly buttons up on the platform doing all the spiritual giftedness in ministry and their job is just to clap and applaud and give a little bit of money. What, mm. what does that mean with all this teaching in the new Testament about everybody's got a, a role to play on this thing called body of Christ, right? Uh, I just ordered a dozen V neck belly button V necks. on. <laughs> <laughs> Should I return? Should I return those? I mean, as long as you pair them with a really good looking Hitler youth haircut, Oh gosh. I think you're going to be okay. 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 Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, you know, we're probably going to get into this, uh, in, in terms of historical aspects of this, but 
I, I think the blessing, the blessings of the United States of America and our religious liberties and freedoms has been amazing for us. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gospel has been able to thrive and we've been able to take the gospel elsewhere around the globe as Americans. But at the same time, it's been one of the biggest curses for us because in my area, in Dothan, Alabama area, we have around 250 churches. Wow. Now, and how I, big How big is your town? About about 80,000, I think. Um, so 250 churches is 80,000. Yes. And a lot wow. of those churches, um, I would say upwards of eight to 10 of them are, are sizable <clears throat> churches, pushing over a thousand members. Hmm. And I mean, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that that's right. a bad thing. I'm saying it's the more churches, the, the better, I think. But what it does is it, is it allows someone to have that shopping experience because mm-hmm. there, there's almost quite literally a, I mean, I pass six or seven churches coming home from work every day. And it's just a like a five mile drive, but like we we have the ability to just say, you know what i I don't like the songs they sing here. I'm gonna go somewhere else. Or you know, it just I don't like uh-huh. the, this place has a better kids program. So in, instead of being the change that you want to see <laughs> affected within that community, yeah. you just you just go somewhere else. Yeah, and like I said, it's it's a wonderful blessing, but at the same time, opens up this very, very like fictitious, very thin, um, convenience driven, commercialist driven relationship with, with your body, with your community. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So <clears throat> how did we get here? Right. Cause this didn't happen overnight. Um, we as Americans didn't someday wake up and say, Hey, I think I want uh, to drop my kid off on a conveyor belt to take him to kids ministry. And and uh, I want a segue to escort me to my seat, and I want a latte delivered to my seat is exactly how I want it. And that actually all sounds really, <laughs> really good. <laughs> well, you can come to our Murfreesboro campus in, in Murfreesboro, and we have all those things. No, just kidding. I just pictured my four year old like leaving on a conveyor belt and someone bringing me a latte <laughs> as I sit down. I'm just like, ah, oh, that would be incredible. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, so uh, some of you guys listening know the church family that I'm, I'm pastoring with. Um, so the church that sent me to launch the campus I'm pastoring now <clears throat> is by all definitions, a mega church. And so we started in uh, 2009. My wife and I came in in 2010 and from 2010 to about 2016, when I was sent out, we grew from around 20 people to about 2,500 people really quickly. And um, it was amazing to watch and be a part of, we never felt like we compromised our core message and our core goal. And in fact, we had to be very intentional about like shifting our focus from the weekend service to disciple making and to make that shift. And man, let me tell you, making that as a large church is ridiculously hard. Um, and the reason it was is because the bigger we grew, the bigger we grew, right? Mm-hmm. The crowds drew crowds. Um, people would tell each other, Hey, we're going to this church and Oh my gosh. And so, you know, just because you got one new person, that doesn't mean one new person that meant sometimes 20 new people. Right. But people would come in with expectations cause you're a big church. Right. And the expectations they came in with were, you know, I'm going to drop my kid off on the conveyor belt and I'm going to, you know, be escorted to my seat on a Segway. I'm going to be given my latte, all that stuff. That was what people would walk in the door with just because we were a big church. And I can remember people being so upset because that that's not what they got. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people being upset because the worship set would go on longer than they wanted it to. And so they'd sit down and they'd tell us after, you know, oh, I can't believe you guys stand up the whole time as you're singing. Or, <clears throat> you know, the the teaching, we go through literally chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line. And, um, you know, well, why can't we do series? Or why can't we, you know, the sermons need to be a little bit longer. And then the big thing is we take communion every single week. And there's a lot of people that as soon as uh, our pastor would say, hey, let's let's go to the table for communion. There's a lot of people that would just get up and leave and they wouldn't even take communion. Hmm. And it would just upset us to no end because we're just like, man, what in the world? But then we realize like that's just that's just people's expectation. They're just here because they think because you're big. It's just hmm. going to be, you know, and. You, you, yeah, you're afforded some anonymity, so you're kind of like, like you know, we might as well just sneak out and get to the restaurant a little bit earlier. Absolutely. Go pick up our kids, get out of here early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we didn't get there overnight as Americans. Um, so let's look at kind of two significant cultural shifts just in us as Americans over the past 100 years to kind of explain how we got to this point. Um, and the first is a shift in American life and Christianity from traditional historic church structures um, and just traditional structures just in general in society to an obsession with youth culture. Mm. So for centuries in America, church was a very important part of society and everyday life. In fact, if you go to any, um, you know, historic city, usually the town square is built around churches. So you'll have your, your oldest churches in the city built around the town square. Um, because church was a, a, a major weekly event and there wasn't much to rival it. Um, we didn't have a lot of leisure activities. You didn't have TV or movie theaters, uh, radio, internet, you know, even phones. There, there were actually in the South, there were things called blue laws. I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys have those in Alabama. They still have them in Georgia where things couldn't be open on Sunday. Yeah. You, you can't buy beer on Sunday, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the way that you know all of uh, all of society was set up was six days people would work, mm-hmm. and then on Sunday everything would get shut down. And so, what did you have to do? Well, you had a church to go to. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, in the year 1906, so that's a little over a hundred years ago. Uh, most Christians in America belong to uh, mainline denominations, and the top five were uh, Methodist. So I want to say like one out of every three Americans was a Methodist. Hmm. Methodist denomination was huge. Uh, Baptist, that's number two, Presbyterian, Lutheran, and Roman Catholic. So as you can imagine, church for most folks was very formal. It was very structured. Most gatherings um, in, in these churches were pretty somber affairs and, uh, church <coughs> for the most part for people uh, was a just expected thing that you went to every Sunday because like, that's what you did, man. Like there's, there's nothing mm-hmm. else open, nothing else to do. You would go with your family to church. Um, it was a place to, to connect with the transcendence of God, to contemplate the, the majesty, wonder and beauty of the divine and the Christian message. Um, that doesn't mean everybody that was in church was doing that, but that's kind of what people saw as the aim for church. So, uh, the architecture, the clothing, the liturgy, so that's the order of service things you did were were kind of aimed to that. And so that's kind of how most people understood church. Um, 
there's a we could go off on kind of a side note to say that uh, church was socially advantageous for people, mm-hmm. even though it was you know built and and designed to connect people to God. It became socially advantageous for you, especially if there's nothing else open in your town for you to go to church, right? Sure. Makes sense so far. Yeah, I think yeah, and, and you know, side the side effect of that was that, like you said, it um, it, it promoted your business or your your political campaign or your connections or your mm-hmm. networks with people to be a. It was like you said, it was politically, it was business, it was very advantageous to be associated with a congregation in your local town. Right. Yeah. And and most of the time you didn't have a lot to pick from, you know, let's say it's 1906 in, in this, the town I'm living in now here, just outside of Woodbury, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. If you'd grown up, you know, as a Protestant, you might have three or four, you know, Protestant churches to pick from. You might have a smattering of small country churches out in the hills somewhere, but you know, for the Mm -hmm. most part, you would have maybe two or three, right? You have a Baptist church, Methodist church, maybe Presbyterian church, um yeah so you wouldn't have had this whole idea of like you said you'd mm-hmm. you have to drive by five churches on your way home or you have right. to pass five churches on your way to the church you're going to i mean you, just not a lot to pick from right i think that's there's a perfect example of that there's a little town called hartford alabama here um not far from us and you, you drive through there's there's a square like you like you described but then on one side of the square you've got a methodist church and on the mm-hmm. opposing side of the square you've got first baptist church Yep. And then, you know, you might drive out on the outskirts of town and you got like a Pentecostal holiness or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the extent of, you know, like you said, the early 1900s, depression era, even those were your options. You, right. You're either a Methodist <clears throat> or you're a Baptist. Yeah. 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 And, and here in Tennessee and in Kentucky, um, Church of Christ and Restorationist movement was pretty big, too. But that's a that's kind of another another movement in mm-hmm. that. But um so what started happening in the 20th century is um, there was a lot of trauma that happened in the early part of the 20th century, particularly the Great War or World War One, mm-hmm. uh, the Great Depression um, in the South, segregation, Jim Crow laws, you know, rin- lynchings, things like that um, into World War Two and then into the Cold War. So, I mean, all of these things kind of coupled together between you know, the 1920s to the mid 1940s, just in, in quick, rapid succession, um, gave problems and rise uh, in problems to American youth. So <clears throat> unemployment was a big deal for uh, young people, gangs, homelessness, crime. And what people started seeing in churches, even though churches were considered kind of the center for uh, cultural and societal life, there was a drop off in church participation among the youth. And so um, <clears throat> there's a author's name's Thomas Burglar. He wrote this. He said, young people seem to be both key actors in the international political drama and especially vulnerable victims of the times. So an amazingly broad spectrum of leaders, both inside and outside the churches proclaimed that youth held the key to saving civilization. Most Americans not only nodded their heads in agreement, but they opened their wallets to fund new youth organizations. So, Essentially, what started happening, I'm not going to read this whole quote, but churches started noticing men were losing the youth. All these things are happening in society. Families are still in church, but we're using, we're we're seeing all these people drop off. And then in the 1950s, we saw this huge change just to American life in general because you you had GIs coming back from World War II. Um, They moved to the American suburbs. 
people had financial affluence. There was a, ri- a rise of the middle class. Um, this baby boom that we hear, you know, the baby boomers that yeah. was around that time. But really, probably the most significant thing that happened in the 1950s that really kind of affected what we're talking about is a was the birth of youth culture. So this is really interesting. The word teenager didn't exist until the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that concept was, you know, you had adults and you had children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't yeah. have teens, right? Um, and then that word was made up in the 1920s, but it didn't get, it wasn't being used regularly until around the 1950s. And you had youth cultures with, you know, youth movies and cars and, and youth music. And, you know, I think of the movie Rebel Without a Cause with James mm-hmm. Dean, which is essentially yeah. youth culture in the 1950s, you know, person like Greece. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, kind, yeah. Of, kind of the same essence. Yeah. So you had this, um, you know, rise of youth culture and the teenager and around that time in American evangelicalism, you have Billy Graham and Billy Graham starts an organization called youth for Christ uh, along with a guy named Charles Templeton. And, and so youth for Christ was born to really kind of meet this um, rising demographic that's kind of disenfranchised with traditional church or becoming less engaged in traditional church. And so a lot of the ministry for American evangelicalism in the 1950s was kind of aimed at youth and aimed at young people, which was a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then you got the cultural revolutions of the 60s. So the Vietnam War, civil rights movement, sexual revolution, uh, the beatniks and the hippies. So after this whole uh, rise of youth culture, it, it takes a pretty dark turn. And you see kind of this counterculture being birthed and you see this rejection of kind of mainline white collar suburban America. And one of the biggest rejections of that was religion as well. So youth between 1920 and 1950 might have been a little bit less engaged in church, but they didn't straight up reject it. But in the 1960s, kind of youth culture started rejecting it Hmm. because they associate it with... um, you know, a lot of political loyalty and, and uh, kind of the white picket fence American thing. And some, some of the countercultural movements just didn't want anything to do with that. So secularism rose. A lot of Americans began rejecting the faith. Um, during that time in the 1960s, mainstream Protestant and Catholic churches started declining in their membership. So in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a movement on the West Coast called the Jesus People or the Jesus Freaks. You've heard of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Also called the Jesus Jesus Movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Elton John talks about it in his song "Tiny Dancer." <laughs> Jesus freaks out in the streets. So, yeah, he also talks about Tony Danza in that song. Oh, hold me closer, Tony Danza. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, I don't know why Tony Danza and Elton John hung out so much, but anyway. I just love that at 5.30 in the morning, you can sing Elton John songs like flawlessly. And I'm just like, I'm still, I'm still scratching the, the eye boogers out of my eyes. You know? <clears throat> yeah. That's usually what I do. The first thing I wake up is I just built out an Elton John song. Yeah. Just wake everybody else in the house up. <laughs> He's singing Crocodile Rock again. But no, this, this Jesus movement, this is kind of where, uh, you know, my parents, from what I understand, kind of came into, into the scene as well. Yeah. Um, they're a really good example of, they grew up in kind of what they describe as being, 
sort of a um, rigid, stiff kind of like uh, denominational Christianity, and uh, then then found the Jesus movement and really connected with the Jesus movement. And yeah. uh, we're going to talk about Keith Green and some of these other um, very kind of uh, non-conformist kind of Christians that mm-hmm. suddenly they showed up on the scene with long hair and played unconventional music that wasn't found in the hymnal and and they just really connected with that yeah yeah and so they they essentially embraced uh most of them were hippies that Mm. had become believers and so instead of saying okay you've got to conform into our you know traditional churches you got to cut your hair put on a suit you know um talk the language of traditional church they essentially um met other hippies where they were and started leading them to the Lord. And then as they led them to the Lord, they kind of allowed them to keep their hippie subculture and kind of imported that into understanding a church. And so Hmm. um, just kind of reading an article that, that I found according to a June 21st, 1971 article in time magazine, uh, Jesus Christ was turning on young people over the United States because they're radical Uh, Christianity as a counterculture. And so you had mass baptisms on the beaches in California. You had um, thousands of teens that would come to know the Lord because evangelists would go visit the school. Uh, Popular musicians like Johnny Cash, Eric Clapton, um, Paul from Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh, Bob Dylan had his uh, born again moment through the Jesus people. And it started having this really, really profound impact on church and ministry and one of the things they would do, they would do coffee house ministries. So they would um, do a coffee house where people could come in and have a cup of coffee and hear uh, a musician that was a Christian musician play music. Um, <clears throat> and then they would share testimonies and share gospel presentation in these coffee houses. So you had guys like Larry Norman, which, by the way, have you ever listened to Larry Norman? No, I haven't. Dude, I've got a. Hang on. Let me show you something. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. I have a Larry Norman vinyl right here. Somebody gave this to me. Actually, Tony Page gave this to Mm. me. You remember Tony? Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, Larry Norman was one of the first Christian Mm. rockers ever around. And his, his song was, why can't, or why does the devil have to have all the bad music? I can't. Ah, I have to look that up. Somebody yeah. listening to this is a Larry Norman phenomenon. I was going to be so mad that I screwed that up. But um, or yeah. why does the devil have to have all the good music or something like that? But anyway, he he was awesome. Like I can still listen to his music now, and I still do play that vinyl. Uh, and he was great. And he started playing rock music, but putting in like a Christian spin to it. Um, you had Chuck Smith who founded Calvary Chapel um, in California. And so basically this movement started in California influencing American evangelicalism as a whole. So youth culture was starting to come into the church for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so mainline churches in the 60s still had um, ceremonial services that were very uptight and formal, characterized by church dress. So, you know, suits and ties, um, liturgy, hymns. But church started shifting to accommodate youth culture. And you saw a growth in non-denominationalism. So there were less formal services. There was no standardized dress. So people started showing up at church in, you know, T-shirts and jeans. There was little to no liturgy, little to no teaching of church history. 
um, less of an emphasis on theology and doctrine, um, more praise songs rather than hymns. And so you saw this shift that happened in American life towards kind of this youth subculture begin to influence the American church. There was a shift in American church towards youth culture from traditional historic structures. Yeah, they said, uh, here's, here's their Larry Norman song. Um, they say to cut my hair. They're driving, <laughs> they're driving me insane. I grew it out long to make room for my for brain. For my brain, yeah. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. But sometimes people don't understand what's a good boy doing in a rock and roll band. Yeah. Uh, I ain't knocking the hymns, just give me a song that has a beat. I ain't knocking the hymns, just give me a song that moves my feet. I don't like none of those funeral marches because I ain't dead yet. <laughs> I could see just like so many heads exploding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so not all of that's bad, right? Not all of that is a, a bad thing. Mm-hmm. What, what were some of the positive aspects of this shift? Obviously, you said that's when your parents came to faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it made it made the gospel more relatable to a lot of people who were completely unreachable by by your average, you know, Methodist Baptist in a small town. Suddenly it felt like, oh, there there is something that's I can relate to. You know, I'm I'm burnt out hippie. Um, you know, I could go to Woodstock every year, but now there's like this big Christian version of that, and they actually have good music and mm-hmm. um people treat each other with with true love there. And I, I know it feels like it's a blend of like my grandparents' religion, my my parents' religion, and my desire to want to um, get up and dance, or my desire to want to grow my hair long. You know, mm-hmm. so it was kind of it was kind of like this um, this pendulum knee jerk reaction of like some of the the legalisms found in some of these you know thirties, forties, fifties like denominational um, Christianity, and it it's like the youth kind of swung like a pendulum the other way. And mm-hmm. kind of rejected that, but then the Jesus movement drew a lot of those people back, or you know, even and, and brought new people into the fold of Christianity because of how relatable it seemed. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, it's always a good thing when people are coming into the faith and people are getting baptized and all that good stuff. But um, what were some of the dangers of that? I mean, we're, we're like you said, it's a pendulum swing and sometimes the pendulum can swing too far. Do you mm-hmm. think that it swang too far in some of these movements or do you think that was, you think it gave rise mm-hmm. to a cultural force where we ended up swinging too far later or, or what do you think? I don't know. I think uh, it's hard to say cause I wasn't there, but I think that we create, um, you, know, you just look at the pattern, like you drive by any, any church, you know, it's like they, um, what tends to happen sometimes in this area, especially is they will, they, the church will outgrow the old sanctuary. So they'll build a really big, nice new one right next to it. And mm-hmm. they'll make the old one, the youth sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So, um, on Wednesday nights, the the old people are doing their thing and the new sanctuary, the young people are doing their thing in the old sanctuary. And they end up being really, really different things. Like when I went to youth group on Wednesday nights as a, as a teenager, um, you know, it was loud, pounding music. It was like there was a light show going on, you know, and it was like mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. radically different. Um, and we create this cycle. So now, now, you know, let's let's say that now when I grow up, when I turn 18, 19, 20, I expect that. That's that's my norm. That mm. was created in me to be my right. norm. And anything that's not that entertaining and that stimulating, um, I find boring and 
I can't really relate to it. It doesn't entertain me. So Interesting. So you're saying what ended up happening with the church trying to reach a generation of youth is they went to great lengths and pulled out all the stops to make it as engaging as possible. Mm-hmm. And now those people who were catered to through youth ministries are now adult members of churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So interesting it's cycle, this continuous, um, I don't know, juvenilization <clears throat> of how we do our worship experiences. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point. So yeah, that's the first shift that, that shift in American life towards youth culture and the church following suit. So we've got to reach the youth. Let's figure out how to do it. Let's engage them culturally where they're at, like a good missionary would do. So that's had a huge shift in just church culture. But then there was a second shift and it's related to the first. And this is where we see a blending of secular marketing strategies and entertainment to this growing Christian subculture. So the Jesus people, they came up with Christian rock. Mm-hmm. So guys like Keith Green and second chapter of Acts and Larry Norman and all these awesome Christian rockers, uh, which you didn't have before they showed up. Um, they brought with them a less formal church service. They brought with them standardized, non-standardized dress. You could wear anything you wanted when you came to church, more engaging worship services, kind of their own subculture. And then in the 1970s and 80s, there was a rise of Christian broadcasting and television. So you'd had preachers on TV and on radio before that, but in the 70s and 80s, it it started rising to a level that people had never seen, primarily through TBN, so Trinity Broadcasting Network, with guys like Oral Roberts, Jimmy Swaggart, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Jerry Falwell, all of them became kind of nationally known televangelists. And so all of a sudden, uh, preaching and church culture was on television, right? So you could turn on and watch MASH on one channel, and then you could turn over and watch Jimmy Swaggart on another Mm -hmm. channel. Uh, So you you started seeing that. And then simultaneously, there's just kind of this national uptick in commercialization and consumerism in general. Yeah. So in the 80s and 90s, especially, you had things like the drive-through and, you know, fast food became something that it had never been before, right? So like McDonald's Happy Meals, the toys that they would start giving in McDonald's Happy Meals and the marketing campaigns that would go with certain movies that would get released, McDonald's would jump on that and Pepsi and Coke, kind of the war back and forth, which, man, what a time to be alive, right? (laughs) Incredible. Um, And then you saw this national uptick, not only in our consuming and commercialization, but also in our access to entertainment. So cable TV started being something that started Americans started having in their house, VHS players. So you could actually watch a movie in your home. You didn't have to go to a movie theater. Uh, the internet in the nineties, that was a huge cultural moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you first got internet as a kid? Um, I actually didn't have internet. Till I got to, to college. Yeah. Are you serious? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, oh man. Yeah. Times. I, yeah. I, know. I remember having internet in my dad's office, and I would have to, go to his office to access the internet. But yeah, probably for, probably for the better. But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, um. Yeah. I remember. I remember having that. It's yeah. It it it's interesting how it kind of um it opened up a whole new world of 
information, ads, mm-hmm. and culture, like you said. Yeah. So, so this uptick and rise of commercialization and consumerism and entertainment were happening in American society. Uh, more Christian programming's coming out on TV and televangel- televangelism, you know, preachers on TV that requires a lot of money to produce programs and to purchase airtime. And so what ended up happening is most televangelists would spend a lot of their program raising money. And so to raise money to be on TV, you would have books that would be marketed, tapes that would be marketed, trinkets would be promoted and sold to viewers. And it was all presented to people in the name of, hey, keep this ministry going. You're, pr- you're promoting the gospel. You're getting this out on the air. Um, mm-hmm. What a lot of people didn't know at the time that we know now is these guys were getting really, really wealthy off of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had that, but also in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was this explosion of Christian subculture with Christian bookstores. That was a big thing that Jesus people brought. Christian radio. We already talked about Christian TV. Um, Christian movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian concerts and music festivals. Christian camps, even a Christian amusement park (laughs) (laughs) called Heritage Land USA in South Carolina, Fort Mill, South Carolina. That was Jerry Falwell. Uh, Well, he came on later, but it was Jimmy uh, and or Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. They had Heritage Land USA. You could actually purchase a timeshare at this Christian amusement park and you could go see gospel shows and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you had Christian celebrities, right? Um, You could go... The list goes, I mean, you got Christian cruise lines. Yeah. You yeah. got Chris, Christian chicken. <laughs> Christian, yeah, yeah. Praise God for that. <laughs> yes. Except yeah. So this was, all, this was a, this was a new thing. You've never seen this before. Right. Um, and, and all of these, m- most Christians, I don't say all, cause there were, you know, probably some that, that had concern, but, most Christians were very happy to see a representation of the Christian movement mm-hmm. on television and in the radio and, you know, being able to go to a Christian bookstore and you could get music that sounded like, oh man, I want to get music that sounds like uh, Motley Crue for my teenager, but he's not going to listen to Motley Crue because that's garbage here. He mm-hmm. can listen to Striper or yeah. he can listen to Bloodgood or he can listen to Whiteheart, right? Well, I mean, you and I grew up on like Tooth and Nail Records, right? Which is just like... yeah a loosely faith-based record label that produced a lot of, um, basically a bunch of bands that could mimic secular punk rock bands or metal bands or hardcore bands that had positive lyrics or even Christian lyrics. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you and I, I mean, I grew up on that and that was like tooth and nail records was my everything when it came to music. because It was kosher for my parents and it sounded like what my non-Christian friends are listening to. Yeah. There was even a chart in the Christian bookstore that, you may remember this chart um, and you would go and you could take your CD and go back to a listening room and listen to that CD. Remember that? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Um, But there was a chart in all these listening rooms that said, if you like uh, smashing pumpkins, then you'll like stave saker. Or if you, so it's basically like if you are used to listening to all these secular bands you can find a Christian alternative to these secular bands that sound like these secular bands, but they're giving you positive music or they're giving you Christian music. I forgot all about that. That's so fat. Cause like, I remember being in the, being in the mall 
you walk in the Christian bookstore and yeah. you go straight back to that that section of the bookstore. Yeah, and you grab a CD and you take it back in this little room and you put these mm-hmm. little, you know, rinky dink headphones on. Yep. And you listen to and I just remember standing there with my brother and listening to the the latest, you know, whatever punk yeah. rock band, yeah. you know, and just we were just jamming out in this little room, you know, in a Christian bookstore. <laughs> you know what's sad? Our our sons will never have that experience. No, because uh-uh. that's such a that's an anachronism. It doesn't exist anymore. You can't, you know, you just hop on your Spotify and hey, remember this band? Yeah, that's so funny. I forgot all about that. Yeah, so that that was seventies, eighties, nineties, right? This explosion of the Christian subculture, this celebration of we can have a Christian alternative to all these things. This, you know, obsession with Christian entertainment, and all of these things became very lucrative financial ventures for many of these Christian leaders. Mm-hmm. And it gave rise to prosperity gospel teachings, which had been around for a very long time. And you can kind of actually trace their origins back to the positive thought movement. It's not mm-hmm. even Christian. It's more based in the, the new thought, new age movement. But anyway, yeah. all of these prosperity gospel teachings started becoming mainstreamed. Yeah. So guys like Kenneth Hagin, Paul and Jan Crouch from TBN, Benny Hinn, um, mm. Trinity Broadcasting Network in general. It just became kind of this poster child for prosperity gospel teachings. You know, God wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be wealthy. Um, so you have this kind of merger of American capitalism with the Christian message. And we as American Christians started being marketed to by other Christians and by Christian organizations on a level we hadn't ever been marketed to before. And so what started happening is religious programming started having to compete not only with secular entertainment, but with other religious programming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of, you know, we're the body of Christ. We're working together for the same goal. It's all the kingdom. It became now we're competitors. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in a business sense. It's in a church sense. Whoever has the slickest, you know, coolest looking religious service or the most engaging entertaining that's you know that's the one people are going to want to go to so we're going to compete with each other for that and so these two movements kind of started blending together and these two moments are again a shift in american life and christianity towards youth culture and then secondly a blending of secular marketing strategy and entertainment and this growing christian subculture and so both of these things have fully developed and merged into the animal that we have now to where now the impact of that is many people don't see church as a place to go to where you connect with the transcendence of God. It's a place you go to where you're entertained and catered to. Mm -hmm. Well, you juxtapose that with historical Christianity in the first century, especially let's say in Rome by stepping foot into an assembly of Christ followers, you were committing your first crime. Mm. You were you were engaging in criminal activity. So right away, um, these meetings would have been have they would have been done in secret. Um, you would have heard about them through word of mouth, and you may there may have even been some sort of vetting process you had to go through in order to step foot to make sure that you weren't someone who was going to you know, cave under pressure or you weren't just a, a government shill or something like that. So right away, the the attitude as you're approaching this is completely different that by stepping foot in this, you're risking it all. Hmm. Uh, 
by engaging in this activity, you're laying your reputation, your your property, your family, all of it is on your life. Your, all of it's on the line by engaging this activity and fellowshipping with these people. So right away, your whole paradigm is completely different than, well, you know, do you guys want to go check out another church today and see if that one suits our needs better? You know, that's like hmm. yeah. a radically different mind frame walking into it. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So it's almost a, a shift of, you know, high commitment. That was the early church, right? Mm-hmm. High commitment. And there wasn't this immediate um, gratification because it mm-hmm. wasn't your best life now. It was, you're probably going to be persecuted and marginalized and misunderstood and hated even by your own family, but you get the kingdom later, yeah. right? To now low commitment and high return and immediate gratification. Yeah. You know, you, you don't have to do anything, man. You can come sit in the back and watch us do all the, the work. We'll, you know, pop your popcorn and sit there and let us entertain you. Um, and, and really it, the church has started mirroring uh, secular culture in that aspect. Um, yeah. Again, that, the guy I referred to earlier, Thomas Burglar, he has this to say about what he calls the juvenilization of American Christianity. So that youth culture kind of impacting church. He says today to be a teenager is to be bombarded by up to 3000 advertising messages a day mm. designed to play on desires for popularity, fun, domination of others, and sexual fulfillment. Christianity must compete effectively in the smorgasbord of sensuality that is the youth market. Adolescent Christians expect their faith to be fun and entertaining. They want the church to make use of the latest music, technology, and cultural trends. Some revel in a completely parallel youth subculture, complete with its own music, celebrities, and clothing, all modeled on the offerings of the wider popular culture. Adolescent Christians construct their religious identity through consumption of products and experiences. Wow. That is, oh man, that is depressing when you think about how many ads, and that's probably grown since he wrote that book, but just how much, how, how many different organizations are vying for the attention of youth and, and you just mm-hmm. average, average American. And then, yeah, to expect your average 16 year old to sit through an hour and a half or two hours of a worship service when they're, you know, it's in a, in a traditional sense, it's like, you know, how would they have the attention span for that? Yeah. So I can see where the, a church would think, okay, well, we got to make it lively and, and things got to be popping and it's going to be entertaining. It's got to be engaging and um, it's got to be charismatic. Um, mm-hmm. but that, man, that's like such a vicious cycle. And, you know, we had this meeting one time, um, kind of have like a, like a business meeting, the best equivalent I can, I can describe at our congregation. And the question was posed to me, um, you know, why don't we have a lot of activities for the youth? Like, why don't we have this separate thing going on with, and someone said, I feel like we're losing the youth. And my response to that was, whose job is it to keep your children engaged in their faith? <laughs> you know, and like that, and I didn't mean that like in a spiteful way, but you know, it's no, like, it's, that's, yeah. you cannot, co- <laughs> you cannot co-op that responsibility to congregational leadership. That that kind of stuff yeah. takes place around your dining room table. But you know and what it, the expectation is for a lot of folks is, hey, I come here and I pay my tithes, mm-hmm. and man, I'm I'm paying money for you to do that. That's your job, mm-hmm. yeah. right? You you work for this church. You're the one in the, like, I brought them here. Yeah, you know, you you disciple them, you fix them, 
it, you know, kind of like how we view, you know, Sylvan Learning Centers, right? <laughs> I, I got yeah. my kid here. I paid it. I saw the commercial. Aren't you supposed to fix my kid? Like teach him how to read. Come on now. Yeah. Or like a yacht club you or tennis club. You go there and the kids, there's like a little kid's room, you know, and like mm-hmm. you're, you're off doing tennis stuff with the adults and then the kids have this, you know, movie that they're going to watch in this plexiglass room where you can, yeah. you know, Disney it's, it's cruise great. line. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that's, <clears throat> that's the essence of it. It's like, no, no, you know what? I, I have a, a good friend who grew up in the Soviet union and how they did church is so fascinating because when someone was brought into their meetings, there was a large amount of suspicion towards that person. Hmm. Is this, who is this person? Did, did someone vet this person like thoroughly? Um, like did someone do the background check on this person? Because we, if we get found out it's imprisonment. Wow. Um, and so they would, they would, it would, it was like you had to earn the trust of the people in the room. Think about that, how different that is. And now it's completely opposite. Now it's like, you know, how, did you enjoy the service? What did you think about everything? Did you get enough mm-hmm. coffee? You know, and what can we do to get you to come back next week? Can you, can you kind of give us a soft commitment that you're going to be here next week? And that's kind of, you know, it's like we kowtow to like these people, like, but it's, um, it's, and it's, it's not bad. It's just, it's I just our focus I, has become completely yeah. misaligned to, think that the purpose is not to give people um, clear steps to to become more committed disciples of Jesus. It's to keep mm-hmm. them happy and entertained so they keep coming back and keep giving. Is that yeah, right? And that, yeah. And that's it goes back to this the saying within within commercialism, within business, that the customer is always right. Right. Oh Lord. And and that has crept into the American church. Yes, it has. The the attendee well, is always right. The the member is always right. And, and if you have the last thing that you want to admit to is that you had a split, you know, and that, that's like, that's mm-hmm. a huge, um, I don't know, like black spot on your pastoral reputation, but you know, that's really at the end of the day, that's, that's not that big of a deal. If you, if you are making disciples, if you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you're really challenging people to conform their lives around scripture, um, you're going to, you're going to anger people. And yeah. remember, the attendee is not always right. It's actually, well, yeah. Times. Well, you and I were talking before we hopped on the podcast this morning about how you know situations sometimes in ministry involve us as shepherds making those tough decisions and being okay with people that say, "Well, I'm just leaving. I'm just going to go somewhere else. I'm just going to. I'll find a church that you know doesn't make me wear a mask, or I'll find a church that." you know, I can get my way or I can have my ministry. And that's really hard when that mentality is somebody comes in with that mentality, right? Yeah. Like sitting in the back with their arms folded, like I'm here. What do you got for me? What do you got for me? But the minute you do something I don't like, the minute the programming is not what I want, the minute you say something in the sermon I don't like, the minute you don't have this ministry for my kids, the minute you're asking me to do something I don't want, man, I'm I'm taking my ball, I'm going home. Yeah. Or I'm going to go down the street or I'm going to, you know, yeah. And and it's, it's it's sad that that's that's the culture we've created mm-hmm. because it literally requires nothing of the people that call themselves church members. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a wishy-washy understanding of church that you're well we go to this church and and the reality is and somebody says we go to this church some that could just mean 
we sit in a big room in the very back. Nobody knows us. We're not known by anybody. We're not being challenged. We're not being discipled. We're not serving. We're not giving. We're not doing anything other than sitting there once a week. And we're there only so long as they give us what we want. And the minute they do something we don't like, we're pushing away from the table and going someplace else. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, how we view yeah. church. It's like, it's like we're in the market for selling the warm and fuzzies. Yeah. And again, yeah. The, the warm and fuzzies is not just... It, it, it could be more than watered down theology. It could be just, you know, people going to a church and, and every single week red meat with stuff they already agreed with before they walked in the doors get thrown their way. And so that's mm-hmm. why they're there. Yeah. Because it doesn't challenge them or ask them to grow or think differently about anything. It's just, yeah, just looking for validation or something. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let's play devil's advocate for a bit. Is it wrong to have engaging worship gatherings? No. Well, it depends on how you define engaging. I mean, okay. All right, let me yeah. give you a scenario and synopsis. So uh, at both of our campuses, we do modern worship music. We have videos. We have, uh, you know, different transition times to where it's smooth transition and it's not, um, you know, it's a... Uh, I don't want to use the word comfortable because that's <laughs> we're trying to avoid that, but we try to make it to where everything flows really, really well together between, Hey, when this person comes up and does announcements, this person comes up to do prayer. You know, I get up to preach. Mm-hmm. We try to make it as engaging as possible and as fluid as possible. Is that wrong? Or is that us just kind of selling out and giving somebody a production when that's not what they need? I think that that question has to be asked not of you because I, I think I, I do the, I try to do the same thing um, both for efficiency's sake but also because you're in a worship setting and you don't want to you don't want to be disorganized and you don't want to fumble around in a worship setting like that it's a it's a it's a reverent time right um, but I think if you could take everybody involved plop them in a you know, the, the middle of the woods somewhere and, you know, you're, you're meeting in secret. What does that look like? And how does that change the dynamic or something, you know, or you, mm. you, you're meeting in a home somewhere. It's like, how does that change things? And how many do you lose in that setting? Huh. How many are clinging to that smooth, you know, transition and production of a, of a, of a worship service? Yeah. I see so, what you're saying. So how many are there for that versus how many are there to actually worship, study God's word, pray together, encourage each other and the Lord. And that's why they're there. Right. Right. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of the litmus test for when we step over the line? In in (laughs) other words, when we've started to put more focus and attention on giving people the production and giving people a smooth production, that's when we know, Hey, we've stepped over the line. Well, you know, I, I can't, it's hard to say because I, I fall prey to that. I, I'm, I, you know, as our services are starting, I look at my watch. I, I think about, um, you know, like last week we had, uh, some of our youth lead worship. And one of the things going into it, uh, as they were rehearsing was, oh man, is this going to be, is this going to be a train wreck? And I had to, I had to kind of repent and say, you know what, if it is a train wreck, if, if everyone sings off key or, you know, they just have no idea what's going on and they just look so disorganized, who cares? Because <laughs> the yeah. fact that we have six or seven 11 through 14 year olds who have came to me with a desire to want to lead worship is a miracle. It's a blessing. And sometimes I look at it just completely the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, they ended up doing 
a wonderful job at leading worship, but I think uh, we as leaders, we kind of, like, the impetus is on us to a certain extent, too. Do we put a lot of, is that our currency, is like the production value of our services? Right, right. And I think we we have the ability to kind of set the tone in the room when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, we we oftentimes have little children run up and, you know, parents can't catch them in time. And, you know, it's just like little, mm-hmm. little things that you're just going on. And, and, and at first you're just like, ah, oh, why, you know, but then right. other time, lately I'm just like, you know what, that's beautiful. That there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's, there's just a, I don't know, a realness of these gatherings that you can't mm-hmm. keep your kid quiet the entire time. You know, you can't, sure. keep and sometimes your kid's just going to bolt off and run across the stage or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. and I, I think there's a there's a balance between on one side, let's say this is a continuum, right? On one mm-hmm. side, you, you're striving to create an environment without distractions so people can mm-hmm. engage in the teaching of God's word and engage in worship, right? So mm-hmm. that's one point of the continuum. You're, you're striving to create an environment uh, without distractions. And you want to do that with excellence. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that continuum there's this idea of you're also wanting to remind people that the point of this is not them being entertained and not them sitting through a movie or not them being in a concert. It's a family, a gathering, a body of people, Mm -hmm. real people, normal people, right? Yeah. So real normal people are not perfect and polished, right? So real normal people that want to sit with their kids in service, their kid's going to have a meltdown in the middle of service. Mm-hmm. And before the parent can, you know, get them out of the room as they're crying, you're going to have to listen to a kid crying every now and again. Yeah. Right. And real normal people that aren't polished and perfect and are celebrity, they're going to flub up an announcement sometimes. Or they're not going to, you know, catch every single person walking in the door and say, good morning. I've, I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard people say, well, I came in and you're, and nobody said good morning to me. And I'm like, Hmm. We we eventually did. We circled back around before you left, but you, you came in thinking that in two minutes, if I'm not greeted, then I'm I'm you know. But we're real normal people, right? We're going to make mistakes, and so there's this continuum of man. We want to do everything with excellence to create an environment without distraction, but at the same time, we're real normal people, and we're family. And man, you're invited to be part of this family, hmm. but you're not invited to sit in a seat and be given an excellent entertainment experience without any imperfections. And the minute you see an imperfection, then you have a right to come to me and say, well, I didn't see this or I didn't see this or you know what I'm saying? And so there's that balance. You can find yourself going too far one way of that, but finding a balance right in the middle, I think is that's, that's where we strive to do. We don't always do that perfect. We sometimes we lean one way to the other, but. um, Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree. And someone I really look up to said this and I, I always, I just kind of took it to heart and remembered it, but basically he said, um, he said, you know, I, I try with my congregation to get, um, two thirds of the time that our people are together, they're facing each other. And this looks like hmm. sitting around a fire in someone's backyard or having a meal together, or, um, you know, you're doing something, uh, you know, just you, people are just facing each other and that is building a relationship. It's building, um, you know, vulnerability and openness there in those, in those relationships. And then one third of the time they're facing a pastor or a teacher wow. or they're facing the front of the room. That's beautiful. But it's hard. That. It's hard to get that ratio because, you know, it takes a lot of work, but when you do that um, and you can maintain that, then it's people, people getting to open up with each other and people tend to, you know, 
I don't know, I guess see the the reality of the, you, you are just human, you know? And like when yeah. people from our congregation just come in our house and they see how messy it is sometimes and it's just like, oh, you're just a real humans, you know? Right, just, right, right. We're not hiding anything from you. Yeah. So is it wrong for us to create and sell Christian products? So to, to mm. create, if, if you and I, let's say you and I wanted to, resurrect the band we were in in college but we wanted to do it christian <laughs> yeah so, so i kind of like i kind of like what rich mullins did you know how he like uh he sold albums and stuff but he never knew how much he made off of them oh dude i love i love me some rich mullins yeah oh, he, love him he, for those who don't know rich mullins he he i mean probably raked in millions of dollars yeah but his staff never told him how much he made and he always capped his income at basically right at the poverty line of what the average person, average American mm-hmm. in poverty would make. And he lived on an Indian uh, reservation. Yeah. 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 So he would, he basically, his home church was the one who managed his finances. And he just said, Hey, all of us yours, just give me a stipend to live off of. Mm. Yeah. That, that's beautiful. I mean, so no, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I think like you said, in balance and, and moderation, uh, we don't want to live on the, the excesses of, of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So basically it's, it's not wrong to create something for other Christians to be encouraged and edified by, and it's not even wrong to mm-hmm. make that resource something that people buy so long it is, as it is not something that's being used primarily for our financial gain and affluence. Is that mm-hmm. what I hear you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well how, at what point do we step over the line with that in terms of just marketing that to people? I mean, we can make it available to people, right? Yeah. So, uh, Corey and I, Corey's our pastor at the Murfreesboro campus. We wrote a book together a couple of years ago. And if you go to our Murfreesboro campus, we have a resource center and you can buy that book. So at what, and Corey just put out a book uh, a couple of months ago. At what point does it become, we've crossed over that line in terms of making that book available to people or is there a line? I don't know. Yeah. You have to play it case by case. And that's the thing is it's, it's all these things are just case by case and you have to, I don't do, do it with the fear of the Lord in your heart and just know that, yeah. you know, it's that my, like my dad would always say a man of God has a potential to, to fall on in three, three categories, the, the gold girls or glory. And gold, the gold is powerful. You know, it's mm-hmm. very persuasive. It's enticing. We just have to always be on guard with that, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm sure anybody listening to this that follows news cycle or anything like that is probably familiar with what's happening with Hillsong Church right now. And uh, one of their primary leaders had a pretty significant moral failure. Um, are you familiar with this, Gabe? No, not at all. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I've been following it pretty closely just because I think it's just really, it's sad, but it's at the same time very, um, it's almost a cautionary tale. This mm-hmm. is a young guy that came to the States. He's, he's American, but he was discipled and trained, obviously, at Hillsong in Australia. He came to New York City to plant a church, and it exploded about 10 years ago. And celebrities started coming to his church and he started getting TV appearances and book deals and became Justin Bieber's pastor and, you know, NBA players would come to his church, all this stuff. And um, 
people were like scratching their heads when they looked at him because the dude would dress in like super fashionable, super, you know, pricey watches and shoes and leather jackets and all this stuff. But the whole thing was, oh man, this is just, you know, we're just, we're, 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 uh, being all things to all people, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, lo and behold, it came out that he had had multiple affairs Mm. and he displayed kind of this narcissistic manipulative personality to, you know, self-promote, to sell his book, to sell his image, to sell himself. And man, when I saw that news story break, number one, I wasn't surprised because I'd kind of been following this guy's ministry for a while and kind of been concerned as many people had. But number two, I was just saddened. Because I was like, man, this is this is like where this leads. Like when men of God make that their aim to run in the circles of celebrities and they basically just import that idea of celebrity onto the church. I'm now a Christian celebrity, which I just think those are two. That's oxymoron. That's like being a fat, skinny person, right? Mm -hmm. There should not be such a thing as a Christian celebrity. The only celebrity if you're a follower of Jesus is Jesus. You got to be like John the Baptist. It, it, I must decrease. He must increase. It's never the opposite. I must increase so he can increase. Like, are you kidding me? Seriously? Yeah. But it became such a, a sad cautionary tale of, man, that's where this train ends. It's a cautionary tale for both leaders in the sense of, man, if you make that your aim and your goal, this is where this ends. You're going to end up becoming just like the world. That's why the Bible says, love not the world or the things of this world. But also, if we as Christians, we worship a person and we exalt a man or a woman or a band or a church and put them on this pedestal, man, it's going to implode. It's going to self-destruct. It's going to let us down. Mm -hmm. So how do we guard our hearts and minds against this magnetic pool of becoming consumers of entertainment rather than disciples that are on mission with Jesus. Oh man, that's a very tough question. I think we recognize it. We recognize a threat. It's there. Um, and, and we as humans, we always tend to gravitate towards the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We always tend to gravitate towards the shiny things, you know, and yeah. the golden calves. Um, I think it's it's important to recognize that our flesh is very powerful, and, and every day we must crucify that flesh. And that is a you know, like an everyday thing for me, multiple times a day for me of crucifying mm. my flesh. Like you know, Galatians five twenty four. Paul talks about you have to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So allowing that to die and, and putting that to death in you um, is very, very difficult in our culture and in United States of America. It's almost it's almost looked at as like sinful to do that. Yeah, you're suppressing but, your true self if you put to death your flesh. Yeah, but I think that's the key. I think just recognizing it's there and you know, just crucifying it. I don't I don't know what else to say. It's it's very, very tough. No. Is there a kitten in the background meowing? <laughs> we cannot make it through a single episode without one of my animals making it. <laughs> one of your kids grabs juice in the other episode and your cat is meowing in this episode. So oh, man. we were close though. We were close. We were really close. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, man, I, uh, I think this has been a really good conversation. Yeah. I hope this has been helpful explaining kind of how we got here. And I don't think it's bad to listen to Christian radio. <laughs> um, and I, I really don't think it's bad to eat at Chick-fil-A. Oh, definitely not. No, it can't be. That's that Jesus chicken, man. Eat Chick-fil-A while listening to Kanye West <laughs> Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but I think we should bring back those listening rooms at the mall. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, we should bring back, uh, trying to think of a cheesy 90s Christian. Mm. Man, <laughs> I have been to some more cheesy Christian concerts. We should just do a whole podcast episode about the cheesiest Christian concert you've ever been to. I saw Carmen probably 15 times in the wow. late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Cause all these concerts were free. So mm. anyway, if you don't know who Carmen is, just Google him <laughs> and be prepared to be floored by the man's beauty. So and his tube socks and his tubes. <laughs> Did you just Google him? <laughs> no. I just remember Carmen wearing tube socks. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Just like I remember Walker, Texas Rangers partner being served apple pie and always being denied apple pie. You remember Carmen and tube socks. No. Yeah. Anyway. DC talk. Yeah. Uh, we, we should do an episode. That would be, that would be classic. I wonder if I could get an interview with one of those guys. I bet I could. Cause living here in the Nashville area, it's amazing how many dudes you meet that you find out like, Oh my gosh, you were with that band in the nineties or you toured with those guys or you were in that band in the nineties and, Mm-hmm. They're just like a normal dude working, selling insurance now, you know, molding mm-hmm. mm-hmm. with a pot belly. And I'm like, oh, okay. Back in the nineties, you were something, but that's funny. You're, you're something now, but you're just something different. So, yeah. <laughs> and if you're listening to this, whoever you are, we love you. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, I'm balding and have a pot belly. So I don't am too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. It's been a good conversation. Yeah, keep it real. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.